Message from the Cast This is not a word-for-word rendition of Tempest in a Teacup by A.K.A. Vertigo. Please feel free to read the original fic along with us, but keep in mind that we have made necessary changes to accommodate the needs of a living and breathing audio experience. This is performed in the spirit of the source material, but with the recognition that necessary changes have been made. Thank you for listening. Trial by Fire She wants to see him. He doesn't want to see anyone. Iroh is exhausted as he explains this. He has spent the past two nights burning every wick and pulling every string in an attempt to salvage the disaster wrought and received by his nephew. He has visited his brother twice, striving to temper the punishment into a compromise that will not leave the kingdom airless. So far, the results have been less than promising. Zuko refuses to see him. In fact, Zuko refuses to see anyone. Only the physicians have been allowed a few obligatory hours of tolerance before being banished from the prince's apartments. Even in the depth of his darkest hour, Zuko remains indomitable. But Katara is stubborn too, and two hours later she is following Iroh into the palace outer wings, towards the exiled prince's relocated quarters. Dressed in the pale, long silks of a scribe, eyes downcast and face blank, she draws no attention. A tray laden with a pot of tea, two cups, and a bowl of soup sits firmly in her hands. When they reach the locked doors, she detaches herself from Iroh's side and stands before the guards without saying a word. The guards, not knowing what to make of this reedy girl, or the tray in her brown hands, or the dragon of the west behind her, gaze at Iroh for guidance. Let her pass, if she can. Katara bows to Iroh, murmurs polite thanks to the guards, sets down the dinner tray, and then proceeds to start kicking the thick door with all her strength. Dumbfounded, but not exactly astonished. Iroh watches her. Idiot! Vapid, bombastic, megalomaniac! Quit hiding! Quit it right now, you blowhard! Cringe under the sheets all you want, sissy, but first you will damn well open this door and face me! Iroh, the guards, all of the beings of heaven and the administers of hell, look on with horrid fascination while the girl continues to barrage the door and the one behind it without mercy. Or shame. Eventually, Katara's insults leave the realm of polite to travel among the creative diversity that Iroh is impressed of in spite of himself. Apparently, the past five years of Katara's keeping were not nearly as sheltered as he assumed. The alarm of the rising commotion is nothing, absolutely nothing, compared to the shock of the door wrenching open. Katara's cries halt immediately, one foot frozen in mid-kick. She stares. Zuko stares back. It will not be, the physicians assured, a significantly debilitating scar. The burn was too precise, too controlled, to cause true damage. Iroh knows his brother, and he knows his nephew, 
and he knows that the damage dealt is more than true enough. This is a wound whose brutality goes beyond the authority of blood and bone, beyond mind and sight. It's about heart. The physical aspect of the act, Iroh understands, is a minor evil. And it is evil. A direct strike against innocence and trust. A crime recognizable to anyone with a working heart. Go away. She doesn't budge. With one sudden movement, Zuko grabs her wrist, the one clutched over her heart as if to shield it, and pulls her forward. Close, their profiles show an ugly contrast. Yet there is a raw echo of sympathy, translucent with shock. Her face reflects the horror and pain he dares not show. The girl does nothing to break free. Leave me alone. Coward. Zuko throws off his grip, pushing, but Katara has braced herself. She doesn't stumble at the shove. The two stare at each other with hopeless resolution. Two days ago, Ira watched a boy fall, burn, for the callous sake of pride. Then it was a surrender of a child's faith to the devastating laws of the world. Now, Katara's head slowly bows in obedience to Zuko's glare, and Iroh recognizes the voice of sacrifice. This boy. This girl. His children, if not by blood, then by the unspoken commandments of heart and honor, and in their darkest moment of need Iroh finds his hands empty of aid. The dragon of the West has never felt more defeated. Jellyfish. I ordered you to- I refuse to take orders from a spineless jellyfish. Even if that jellyfish is a prince. A muscle twitches in Zuko's jaw. It is not, Iroh suspects, a gesture of anger, but one of astonishment. How dare you, you stupid water peasant! Shut up. Please. Shoulders set, Trey firmly clenched, she marches past the glowering prince into the darkened room. Iroh barely has time to register her departure, or the answering storm of outrage on Zuko's ruined face, before the boy turns on his heel and blasts after her. The door slams shut. The shouting begins. It is too muffled to reveal words, but Iroh can imagine the scene being carved on the walls inside. Five years of friendship are being unleashed to rail against pride, against pity, against the desolate places newly scorched into Zuko's soul, against the sadness underneath Katara's horror. Straining, Iroh hears only the pounding of his own blood and breathing. The door opens. Katara's face is pinched tight, livid, and her eyes are wide with a suspicious brightness. The sleeve of her robe is singed. If it's not too much trouble, could someone please bring some more soup? As well as another teacup? Please? Hell would obey her. She's trembling. 
Iroh notices the fine quiver running down one small arm into the small hand digging small fingers into the weave of her robe. A silk trail of fireflies is being crushed in her fist. But her gaze is invincible, and she stands small and determined in her mission to be a blue-eyed barrier between a hurt boy and the world. If Katara had been at the duel, Iroh wonders, would she have looked away? New cups and more soup arrive. She accepts the tray with faultless courtesy, the poise of her manners unmarred by the severity of her anger, and steps back into the room. The door closes without a sound. Ira waits for the shouting to resume. It doesn't. <laughs> He doesn't understand her. I don't understand you. What's wrong with it? The color is lovely. The color is blue. In Zuko's opinion, there is nothing actually wrong with blue. Blue is blue, and that's fine. Pretty. Adequate. Whatever. He's used to blue. In fact, Zuko is more than used to blue. He's resigned to it. Blue seas all around him, blue skies always above him, blue eyes looking at him. Okay, fine. He can deal with blue. But blue is not the problem. It's cheap. This is not praise, but Katara ignores his condemnation with practiced, and artfully fake, obliviousness. A bargain. Master Iroh always says that the only thing better than finding what you're looking for is a- Don't say it. He gets nothing but a second smile, blithe and unrepentant in return. Zuko wonders if Uncle's presence would have made this latest shopping stroll more bearable, but past experience tells him otherwise. This certain brand of madness cannot be curbed, only endured. After all, it's not like there is anything important to be done. Oh no. Certainly not like there's an avatar to find or a prince's honor, throne, and birthright to redeem. No, nothing like that. At least, not when there's a market to ferret through for knickknacks, rubbish, and oversized pieces of decorative buffoonery. In this matter, at least, Katara is marginally saner than Iroh. She rarely buys items that are not needed. But rarely does not mean never. I think it'll be a nice rope, don't you think? You have robes. Nice ones. Why get something that looks like it was stolen off a peasant's back? Because silk stains easily and is a pain in the... Well, everything to clean. I need something more adaptable for the changing weather anyway. And it does not look at all like it was stolen off a peasant's back. Not in the least. The last bit is added for the shopkeeper's benefit, and Zuko glares at him in retribution. Victory brings its own failure though, as the glare succeeds in cutting the fabric's price in half, and they walk out of the shop with yards of blue in tow. Your skills of negotiation are as miraculous as Ever, Prince Zuko.
Lucky for me that we ran into each other, huh? Ran into each other is Katara language referring to her disappearing from the watchful attention of the crew, despite implicit warnings slash orders to remain in sight. And Zuko's resulting time-consuming hunt for her among the crowded market. Once upon a time, the vanishing act was forgivably rare. Allowable. Now, she flees as soon as the anchor sinks an inch below the water. It seems amazingly dense to have to repeatedly explain the various dangers available to a small, pretty girl of 13. A girl who usually manages to give a fairly convincing impression of having more wits than hair. Yet Zuko ends up having to bark reminders at her time after time after time after time. No matter how often he explains it, or at what volume he does it at, Katara does not seem to understand her position in the situation. Ironically, having acquired the fabric means they are now obligated to purchase countless other apparently necessary and entirely trivial items. A new pair of scissors. The old ones are sluggish? Half a dozen needles of various sizes. The old ones are dull. Oceans of thread. I'm out of green and yellow and this isn't the nicest orange. Let's get more. Handfuls of buttons, etc, etc. The wasteful intricacy with which the items are found is surpassed only by the ridiculous amount of consideration Katara lavishes upon selecting each one. A button is inspected from every tiny angle, a needle stabbed at everything within testing range. The thread selection almost breaks Zuko. Katara goes from spool to spool and back again enough times that he begins wondering how many it would take to knit a noose and strangle her. Or him. Whatever ends the torture, he doesn't care. Only blessed ancestors let it end. By the time they finally finish, having walked through the whole market thrice over, Zuko's patience is in tatters. Ever the contrast by his side, Katara looks satisfied and serene. Thank you. You are a great deal of help. Wonderful. I am so glad this day wasn't a complete waste of time for everyone. Maybe in your infinite spare time you can knit a sweater for the Avatar. That is, if we ever actually manage to find him sometime between shopping trips. We don't have a single inkling of whether anyone has so much as mentioned the Avatar around here. But at least the ship will have new curtains. A troop of earthbenders passed through a month ago. They were heading to Amashu to meet with its king about expanding courier services. They mentioned new improvements in the design being inspired by airbending. Two months before that, there was an oracle babbling about resurrection, but he turned out to be a charlatan, and they ran him out. But... There were a couple of silk merchants who returned from the southern provinces saying they were impressed by the shrine relic seen there. Antiques from mountain villages. Mountain villages that remember trading goods with certain temples set on certain high mountaintops. People come to the market to talk as much as they do to shop. Friendly chatter helps grease the bargaining wheels. 
Plus, who's going to guard their tongue around a 13-year-old girl buying soap and buttons? I bet this ship is finished restocking by now. We shouldn't keep them waiting. I'm sorry, by the way, for leaving without permission. Again. Zuko does not say thank you. Zuko does not say, I'm sorry. Zuko says nothing to the girl by his side, the girl who is 13 years old, whom he has known for five years and counting, and who is capable of surprising him with mystic regularity. But then, she's the girl who has never asked for his gratitude or apologies. Wordlessly, he takes the heavy bundles from her hands and carries them to the ship. They sail south. Sometimes, she sleepwalks. This is a rare occurrence reserved for nights when the nightmares are too heinous for Shuang's tea to overcome, and Katara suffers the episodes, despite having scant memory of the experience in the morning. It would take a harder man than Iroh, indeed, it would take a hard man overall, to not pity the bruised shadows under her eyes. More troubling than the fatigue, however, is the matter of location. In the confines of his estate, her sleepwalking followed a pattern. There were a set number of spots she could be found in. The library. The kitchen. The garden. In the morning, they knew where to find her. On a ship, it is different. As if compensating for the new lack of space, Katara's sleepwalking turns dangerously random. She drifts into the mess hall, curls up on the soldiers' bunks, tucks her small self into a corner of the helm. Iroh can discern no pattern in the wandering, and he worries about the crew mistaking her affliction for madness. Katara is already a clear oddity among them. He does not want to see her shunned. But Iroh's concern proves unneeded. The crew does not shun her, nor do they express disgust for the weakness. Instead, they are sympathetic. They allow Katara to roam freely in her days, maintaining a careful watch to make sure she doesn't head overboard or into the engine furnace. When she falls asleep in a stranger's bed shivering, she wakes up with a blanket wrapped around her. In the morning, no one mocks, no matter how discreetly and breakfast will usually have the addition of steamed pears filled with comforting honey. Pleased, but puzzled by the wealth of concern, Ira wonders at its origins. It is Lieutenant G who sheds light on the mystery, appearing at Ira's door one night with a familiar bundle of padded sleeping robes and tousled dark hair in his arms. Gently, he settles the girl down on the bed with a tenderness and lack of fumbling that suggests he has done similar tasks before. Ira watches the man adjust the pillow to better cradle Katara's head. I have a daughter only a little older than her. So the crew is kind. Committed to a quest many believe to be a fool's errand, they are under the constant temptation of feeling lost, 
and thus find it easy to sympathize with the little blue-eyed stray in their midst. Zuko's reaction is significantly less understanding. The sleepwalking is news to him, and unwelcome. Why wasn't this mentioned before? You never asked, and it does not concern you, so quit growling about it. Beneath her words is an unspoken barb. And it's not like there's something you can do about it. The rest of breakfast is spent in prickly silence, Iroh's banter failing to subdue the stinging atmosphere. The two combatants refuse to look at each other, their postures radiating the promise of a lengthy avoidance. Thus, it's understandably surprising when two days later Katara is slumped outside Zuko's door with her eyes closed and her breathing peacefully deep. A passing guard discovers the girl, and being a less practiced man than G makes the innocent mistake of trying to rouse her. Katara's scream is a blind gush of panic and shock. It rebounds through the hall and penetrates the iron walls to wake Zuko, who throws open his door to find Katara hysterically clawing at the well-meaning hand around her arm. What follows next is a brief, scorching explosion of sharp words. Zuko. Clumsy and stunned apologies, the guard, and ragged muffled sobs of a scared child. Katara. <laughs> it is the first time Zuko sees her cry. Left alone, the two of them stand equally disoriented in the clutter of the moment. Finally, Katara drags a sleeve across her puffy eyes, too tired and miserable to summon proper manners or feel embarrassed by their absence. It's okay. I'm sorry for disturbing you. I'll go back to my room now. And I'll lock the door better this time. I'm sorry. She avoids looking at him, but her slumped shoulder and pinched face are a loud cry of dejection. The tears have clumped her eyelashes into wet triangles. Not your concern, she'd said. And it's not like there's something you can do about it. Come in. You can fall asleep here tonight. What is stranger? That he offers? Or that she accepts? In the end, both actions weigh the same. Katara curls up on the banished prince's bed. Zuko watches the waterbender bring her knees to her chest, palms folded under cheek, making herself as small a target as possible. Do you want me to leave the lamps burning? I like the glow. Only... Will you stay? Please? J just until I fall asleep. He stays. In the morning, Katara wakes up in her own bed. Per usual, she cannot locate much of the nightmares that held her, only the hollow tear left by their visit. Yet this morning, the emptiness is not absolute. By its side are hazy memories shielded in gold, of being suspended but safe, supported, secure in the carriage of strong arms 
and of warm fingers lightly brushing the wet corners of her eyes. She finds him in the dark, alone. It's late, too late for little girls to be wandering awake on darkened ship decks, but Katara is getting less little by the day. And it's past the time when all good princes should be in their rooms, sleeping, meditating, preparing to fight another day. But Zuko doesn't rest much these days, wondering how much blood the word good has left to give. He's tired of thinking things like this. Wanna hear a story? No. It's about the Avatar. Go on. Ah, right. Well, once upon a time, there... It's that kind of story? It's a story. Listen first and complain later, okay? Or pretend I'm talking to the fish and ignore me. Anyway, once upon a time, there was a king who was greatly troubled. Who's king? What? Whose king was he? From what country? His own. Doesn't matter. Quit interrupting or this will never get anywhere. Yes, it matters. What kind of information am I supposed to get out of this drivel if you don't even know what people he ruled? His own people. They were his people, and he was their king, and this is my story. <sighs> oh, never mind. Getting you to listen is like getting a sane man to chew glass. Why do I... Why was he troubled? Because he was in love with the moon. Ah, uh, a madman. No. He was a very brave, very noble king, and so the moon loved him too. But there was a problem. See, the king loved the moon to the point that he couldn't bear a single night without her. Whenever the moon began to wane, as was her duty to, the king's health would begin to weaken alongside. Ah, a madman with a lunar allergy in reverse. Fascinating. And you're immune to romance. Just hush. <sighs> Each night, the king begged the moon to stay. But how could she? Her task was to go and return. She couldn't defy her fate any more than a rock could turn to water, or a tree learn to walk. Instead... She begged the king to travel the sky with her, but the king was bound by his own duties and could never abandon his kingdom. A good king, then. Even if he was stark mad. I think so, too. It's kind of sad, though, don't you think? Hmm. Maybe that's one of the ways to distinguish a truly good king from a simply powerful one. A good king is willing to be unhappy for the sake of doing the right thing. A king who's nothing except powerful will just do whatever he wants. 
So they continued to live and love, suffering the separations. On the nights when the moon was hidden completely, her nature taking her too far to be seen, the king's heart would fall so low he chanced dying. Desperate, they turned to the avatar for help. Which avatar? Water? Earth? Uh, fire or air? I don't know. He was the avatar, right? And had been the avatar for a very long time. It probably didn't matter much by then. People remember Roku as the avatar first, and a firebender second, don't they? People remember Roku as the last avatar anybody knew about. Things change. Anyway, the Avatar asks what each of the two was most afraid of. The moon said, That one day I shall leave and go too far to find my way back to him. The king said, That one day I shall look up and see no way to remember her. Idiots. Maybe. Or maybe your thinking is different when you know you're in love, but don't know what to do about it. Maybe it shows you new things to fear. Maybe you have to learn new ways to be brave. Maybe he shouldn't have been crazy enough to fall in love with a moon. Maybe he didn't have a choice. Ugh, whatever. The Avatar looked at the king and the moon, and he said that he could aid their suffering. But the price for this would be a heart. What did he need a heart for? What would the Avatar do with it? What do you do with yours? But the lovers were shocked by the Avatar's words and refused to consider such a sacrifice at first. It was because the moon's heart was her anchor to the king's world, and the king's heart was his signal to the moon's world. If one were to vanish, their connection would be broken, and they thought they'd be unable to reach each other. But as time passed, the king, being mortal, grew older and frailer. The moon feared his aging body would no longer be able to endure the pain of their separations. Yet still she could not stay with him, and still he couldn't go with her. Finally, she went to the Avatar and implored him to protect them from the pain that would eventually befall them. She was surrendering before the actual fight? The madman was in love with a coward then. No wonder they were doomed. It's not cowardice to be ready for tragedy. And she wasn't scared for her own sake, after all. <sighs> the moon said... Give us something that will be there when I am gone, and something that will last beyond his end. I will give up my heart if you will give us something that will last forever. Unfortunately, when the moon tried to take her heart out of her chest, her grief was so strong that the heart shattered in her hands. She began to weep, thinking all was lost. How does anyone give up their own heart? That's impossible. It's a story. Impossible things are easier in stories, I think. So, the moon was crying, and the avatar said, 
Don't despair. Love does not depend on distance or time. I will give you something more powerful than death or duty. Something stronger than dreams or memory. I will give you hope. The Avatar took the tiny pieces of the moon's heart and began his work. First, he raised a pillar of earth so tall it scraped the black sky. Standing on its top, he took the pieces and ignited them until each shard blazed with radiance. Then, he froze each bright piece to preserve its brilliance. Finally, the Avatar summoned all the four winds and scattered the shining pieces across the night's surface until no dark corner was left without a point of light. And? And that's why we have the stars in the sky. Stars? Yeah, stars. What? Why are you looking at me like that? Because that's one of the stupidest things I've ever heard. What was the point? I don't know. You've been sulking all day and now you're sitting in the dark, brooding. Again. I thought a distraction would help. At... at least a little. I don't need your pity. Or your silly stories. I know. But it's all I had to give. The night continues, the ship keeps moving forward, and neither the prince nor the girl say anything else. Eventually, Katara sighs again and, bowing gracefully, leaves. Zuko is only vaguely aware of the teacup left behind, assuming its contents finished and forgotten. When he picks it up, however, he is surprised to find it full. Inside, he sees the moon. Thank you for listening to this adapted audio recording of Tempest in a Teacup by AKA Vertigo. Shu Wang and Katara were voiced by me, Doodle Lady. Iroh and Zuko are voiced by me, Ride Boldly Ride. The narrator was voiced by me, Bulletproof Teacup. Scripts were arranged by myself. Visuals were created by Doodle Lady. Audio was arranged by Ride Boldly Ride. The next segment in our saga will continue in two weeks. Thank you for listening.